listeners and welcome to another big talk i'm your guest host alexander ashkin and i'm joined today by the interesting the different the father of green cleaning stephen ashkin steve how are you doing today and thank you for joining me on big talk alex i'm doing great thank you for having me i'm looking forward to the discussion all right. So for all those who are unacquainted with you, Steve, you are the president and CEO of the environmental consultancy group, the Ashkin Group. You're also president of Green to Sustainable, which is an environmental software firm. You work on the board of several different organizations uh, devoted to sustainability and environmentalism, as well as public health and author of such books as The Green Cleaning Playbook and Green Cleaning for Dummies, and most importantly, also my dad. <laughs> so that's a whole lot of things. Are there any other things that our listeners should be aware of before we jump into the meat of our discussion? No, I, I, I think you covered it pretty well. You know, I'm very proud to be your dad, very proud to be your sister's dad as well. But um, I'm also very proud of the work that I've done over my 40-some year career and look forward to chatting with you and sharing some thoughts. And, you know, I hope it's a good listen for your listeners and that get some inspiration and ideas out of it. So um, let's rock and roll. Sounds great. So, Steve, first of all, father of green cleaning. That's a pretty good marketing little byline. How did your interest in sort of the green movement, using a little bit of air quotes there, or sustainability, as people now more often call it, uh, how did that interest first come about? And at what point did you start referring to yourself as the father of green cleaning? You know, I've been working on this one particular issue for over 30 years. And it really came about for two reasons. One is because, candidly, it was my job. I was working for a company that made cleaning products. Um, I was a division vice president, and they paid me to increase sales and profits for the company, right? That's our job. But on a more personal level, you know, I found myself working in a very mature industry. Come on, let's face it. These days, every company knows how to make a glass cleaner that cleans glass. And it's such a mature industry that everyone is price competitive. So what I found an opportunity to do was instead of making 12 different new flavors of a glass cleaner and new colors and, you know, a gallon bottle, a half gallon bottle, a five gallon pail, instead of investing research and development dollars on those kind of things, I became convinced that we could create products where we differentiated them based on their ability to protect people's health and reduce impacts on the environment. So I've been working on that for 30 years, trying to figure out from a technical perspective, how do we really do it, as well as from a market perspective. You know, in lieu of government regulations, how do we use the marketplace to drive these health and environmental benefits? 
So after about 20 years and people telling me I was an idiot and that no one would care about it and that I should go do something else, as it slowly started catching on and as more people got on board and as we trained literally thousands of people how to do it and work with companies to do it, then uh, people started referring to me as the father of green coining. But I do have to finish this little comment by also saying that at this point in my career, more people are considering me or are, you know, commenting that I'm now the grandfather of green coining or maybe even the great grandfather of green coining because I have so many people, kids, grandkids, and I'm using that sort of figuratively. But, you know, it is a thing in the industry and it has taken shapes and innovations and gone in directions that I never would have thought of. And, you know, I'm just really proud of the contribution and um, having been able to uh, be recognized for the work that we've done. Looking at that initial time, this process started about 30 years ago in the early 1990s. Were there any sort of particular market leaders, speakers, business innovators, books that caught your interest at the time and made you think about developing your own unique niche and that being your road to success? You know, in the early 90s, there were a number of books like that, um, Al Gore's book, The Ecology of Commerce really helped me make the connection to how business could uh, address environmentalism. Um, a book by a guy named Ray Anderson from a company called Interface Carpets. Um, he was the CEO of the, of the organization, and I got to know him through the U.S. Green Building Council in the early days. Um, Ray published a great book about his journey and what he did for his company and all the different interesting things that companies could do to reduce their environmental footprint and things like that. And then the final book was in our industry, a, a guy from EPA, Dr. Michael Berry, published a book called Cleaning for Health, Protecting the Built Environment. And, that, and Mike became my mentor. But the thing that I really learned about Mike beyond just his insights and just how brilliant his writing was and how it helped me really appreciate our impact on the indoor environment and on human health, and I'm obviously talking about from a cleaning perspective, but it made me wonder, well, this guy was brilliant, but how come nothing changed? There were no laws enacted. There were no regulations changed. There were no standards created. It almost became like a buzzword. And so that really made me start thinking about, well, gee, you know what's that saying? If you build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. I, I quickly realized that, frankly, that's not true. I mean, that's like winning the lottery. Maybe it happens, but how do we really drive change? How do we really make these things happen beyond just having good intentions? How do we really drive change? So those were some of the books in the early days that I paid attention to. And um, obviously, I went beyond reading a lot of books to doing a lot of publishing. But, you know, that's a whole nother story. Driving change, particularly in industry, I think has become this whole hot topic, in a sense, uh, hope business culture, almost, um, ever since perhaps the late years of Steve Jobs and post-Steve Jobs world. 
a lot of people sort of saw him as a person who could create his own markets. And I feel like that's become something of a bit of your calling card. As somebody who knows some of your work a little bit more intimately, I know that you spend a lot of time these days talking about market transformation. How has that come about, particularly in terms of both advocating from a sense of greater market sustainability, but also corporate social responsibility? And how has this changed like uh, how has your own personal interpretation of market transformation and creating this space changed over time there's a few things that i've observed from studying what people like steve jobs has done and for for your listeners you know um, please alex i hope you don't mind me being a little bit personal but you know your uncle your uncle peter my brother you know, he was, he worked for Apple in the early days, and he was personal friends with Steve Jobs. I mean, not just an employee, but a personal friend with him. So it's allowed me to actually get some really good insights of what those kind of visionary leaders, what they had to do and just how they thought. And I do think that initially, we do have to have some vision. And and for me, what drove me was, I actually care about the workers in the cleaning industry. I care. You know, it employs 5 million maids, janitors, um, custodians, environmental services workers, right? We have all kinds of names for these people. But candidly, they get less protection than, you know, migrant farm workers do. You know, these are hardworking people that really are trying to make a life for themselves and their families. I found them um, being exposed unnecessarily to harmful and toxic chemicals, working really hard, being paid really poorly, being treated poorly by not their employers as well as by the occupants in the buildings they cleaned. So the first thing just simply had to do with that passion, that caring, because change is hard. It takes a long time. If we're only driven by money, it can be years before we see a financial payback. So I really do believe there has to be something else that drives us to really want to do this. I think you're kind of hinting on something that many people are familiar with in passing. And you mentioned it in one of your previous answers, but you use this term, the built environment. A lot of times when we talk about environmental health and sustainability, the public's interpretation sort of jumps to that of protecting green spaces, forestry, perhaps some sort of agricultural work, but aren't necessarily thinking about our schools, our hospitals, our business places. So could you give a little bit more detail about what the built environment is and what that encapsulates in terms of practical exposure for the average person? Well, I think in some respects, Alex, you've touched upon it. You know, we're trying to differentiate between the natural outdoor environment. You know, we all care about what's going on in Lake Monroe and, you know, in Lake Griffey and what's going on in our local forests and what have you. And they're all extraordinarily important. It is. I, I live now in California. I care about what's going on in the oceans, what's going around, going on around here. You know, so the greater 
external environment is incredibly important to be able to support life for so many reasons. But the other part of it is just the built environment, that homes that we live in, the schools, the universities, the classrooms that we spend time in, you know, the places where we work, our office buildings, our hospitals, um, our sporting venues, our entertainment venues, our retailers. And candidly, the reason that the built environment is so important is we spend 90% of our time indoors. So from a health perspective, what goes on in our buildings really does affect our health. And let's face it, that's one of the big lessons we learned from COVID-19. People didn't get sick from COVID when they were meeting outdoors. People got sick from COVID when they were indoors and closely associated with people. So what goes on in our buildings and beyond COVID, it's all the other things that happens indoors from molds and from other contaminants, even the dust that can be contaminated with pesticides or you know, automotive exhaust and things like that can really adversely affect people's health. And finally, you know, Alex, um, we all have bills to pay. I had a mortgage. I had two great kids that I wanted to take care of, you know, and a wife and all these kind of things. I'm glad I could put you guys through school and all of this stuff. But beyond just, you know, that work, I found myself actually working in a, in a place where I could affect what was done in the built environment. So this was really the contribution that I could make, how we clean and how we manage the buildings that, again, we spend 90% of our time on. I'd be a little bit remiss to not bring up COVID-19, so I'm glad it sort of came about naturally as part of this conversation. Obviously, particularly early on in the pandemic, there was this large global push really to step up both cleaning and personal hygiene. As we can probably all remember, there were various uh, disinfectant cloth shortages, hand sanitizer shortages, public service announcements reminding people to wash their hands for 20 seconds, all these sort of things to try and get people to do better. What do you think were some key takeaways here that just came about as part of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in terms of protecting public health? Well, the first thing is, I hope people were reminded how important cleaning is to protect their health, to protect their children's health, their parents' health, right? Cleaning is a public health intervention strategy, right? Because cleaning removes the things that can make us sick. That's why we clean. And unfortunately, I think over time, uh, before COVID-19, we sort of just clean for appearances. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as everything sort of looked neat and put away. And, you know, in the cleaning industry, they actually sell carpet rakes. You rake the carpet to make it look like they'd been vacuumed. You're not actually cleaning them. It's all for appearances. You know, so what COVID-19 really taught us is cleaning is actually really important. We, we also realized that the cleaning products that we have actually work really well if people use them properly. 
So we should have confidence that we really can not just address COVID, but we can address the things that cause food poisoning. You know, we can address, you know, all the other things in life to merely make sure that our indoor environments are healthy and conducive for a good life. And I also think that there's some other things, and, and I hope you don't mind me, you know, putting this out there, mm -hmm. because I really love the, the comment you made about hand washing for 20 seconds, mm -hmm. because this is one of the other things that I think I, I'm really banging the drum on these days, that we learned that for cleaning to be effective, it has to be thorough. And so, you know, when we tell people to wash their hands for 20 seconds, and I bet you've heard, you know, we teach people to wash their hands by singing happy birthday two times. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how we teach five-year-olds. Happy birthday to you. Happy. I mean, we need to stop treating people like they're children. And we need to actually explain to them that even if you rub your palms together for 20 seconds and that's all you do, you are not cleaning your hands effectively. You have to clean between your fingers. You have to clean each of your fingers. You have to clean your thumbs. You have to clean the back of your hands. You should clean your wrists. So we don't even take the time to properly explain to people how to clean effectively. And this is what I hope we're taking away from COVID-19. Cleaning is important, but you gotta do it frequently enough and thoroughly enough to truly remove the contaminants that can harm your health and to do it with products that also reduce possible adverse impacts from the chemicals we use and the other things, right? You're buying toilet paper, you're buying paper towels, the impacts on our forests, you're buying plastic garbage can liners. They're all made out of natural gas, petroleum-based products typically. You know, there's so many things that we can do to make a difference. And this is what I hope consumers, you know, your listeners understand, clean, clean thoroughly, and know that your purchases really do make a difference and you have options. And I hope that you're all smart about the options that you choose. Well, I'm glad that you are taking the route of empowering people and trying to give them as much correct information as possible and the respect to, to make the right decision when they're in that position to do so. Everyone would sort of assume that, you know, maybe it would be mask wearing or maybe it would be, oh, well, we realize the value of UV lights as a potential sterilizing tool. Um, it sounds a lot like cleaning almost uh, has a problem of uh, almost like public relations and communication to the market writ large. Well, thank you, Alex. And please, uh, um, I, I hope I don't offend any of your listeners. But you know, this has been one of the issues that has troubled me for 30 or 40 years now. And specific, specifically what I'm talking about is everybody thinks they know how to clean. Everyone. You know, they learn from their mother, their grandmother, they just sort of figured it out on their own. You know, how hard can it be to, you know, clean after all they clean their house? And what people don't understand is, especially in the commercial institutional space, you know, like cleaning at IU or, you know, cleaning at the, the, uh, the factory, the manufacturing site that you work at, 
you know, this is actually really serious stuff. And that the, typically in the commercial cleaning industry, the average janitor cleans somewhere between 25,000 and 50,000 square feet in a day. So could you imagine cleaning 10 to 20 regular, you know, good-sized houses every single day, cleaning one an hour? I mean, how thorough are we being, especially when you also have to empty the garbage and you got to make sure there's no fingerprints on the entryway doors and you got to make sure there's toilet paper in the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the biggest challenge that I have is, number one, convincing people that cleaning is a serious activity, that it's important to protect people's health, which affects their performance, right? It affects their health. It affects their productivity, but also to invest in it so that th we can make sure it's done thoroughly to really accomplish the task that we want. And it's a hard one when everyone thinks, man, they're an expert because, you know, they once a month clean their bathroom. What you're sort of saying is that there is a little bit of a disconnect because everyone cleans to some degree, but the magnitude, scope, and problems and potential effects of those actions, whether we're talking about methodology, whether we're talking about product selection, whether we're talking about operational decisions, like, uh, you know, how a bu building might uh, ventilate spaces, all these things, as you keep expanding and multiplying, you know, the amount of workers, the size of the space, so on and so forth, that it, it becomes a little bit of... Um, disconnect where people want to just say okay we scale it up but it's not that simple uh, how does the industrial cleaning industry and sort of the sustainability movement bridge that gap what are some entities that either help people understand this better or help create a little bit more cohesion to help the average person understand what's going on First of all, I, I, forgive me, um, and this may sound terrible, but I'm really not worried about the average person. You know, market transformation doesn't happen by working with average people. You know, we're, we're looking for who the leaders are, who their early adopters are, the people who really are willing and interested in leading and learning and changing and improving because then we can sort of just bring it along to help everybody else. We'll just make it easy for everyone else who follows, right? That's, that's how it works. So, you know, we built a, a very good and frankly powerful coalition of organizations. And I sort of bucket this in sort of four areas, mm -hmm. you know, one being the ultimate consumers. So we work with a lot of different organizations who represent building owners. Um, you know, I serve on the board of directors of the Green Sports Alliance. So I love sports, right? I, come on, I'm a Hoosier. You got to love basketball. Otherwise, you get ran out of the state of Indiana, right? Yeah. And I do indeed love basketball. But, you know, I also work on, I serve on the board of Project Green Schools so we can address, you know, school-related stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm on the technical advisory group for the U.S. Green Building Council working on updating their lead rating system. Um, we work with the International Facility Management Association with the Building Owners and Managers Association. So we really work on focusing on the demand side and making sure we're aligning their requests to make it easy for suppliers to meet them because, you know, any problems creates an increase, an unnecessary increase in cost. Mm -hmm. So that's one bucket. The other bucket is obviously the supply side. So we work with the major trade associations in our industry, the International Sanitary Supply Association, the Household and Consumer Products Association. You know, we work with those kind of folks who represent uh, manufacturers of all different kinds. And we work directly with the manufacturers to try to help them differentiate their products specifically relative to health and safety related issues. There is another bucket that we work with, which are the, what I call the influencers. Okay. So these are people that don't necessarily participate in the buying or selling in products, but they influence that. So, for example, the, a lot of the NGOs, so organizations like the Healthy Schools Campaign. All right. You know, there are people out there, advocates. Um, I, um, I'm on the Sierra Club's National Toxics Committee. You know, so while they don't specifically influence or you know, buy or sell anything, but they're influential in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And then the last group, the fourth bucket, is the media. So, you know, I still publish three magazine articles at least every month. I, at this point in my career, I literally have published over a thousand magazine articles all on green cleaning and sustainability related issues. Um, so we work with the publishers. We work with the, you know, I speak at a lot of conferences. You know, other, the media is really important. But Alex, um, I do a lot of these kind of interviews, mm -hmm. but I think that all those influence the ability to drive change, to build market awareness, to connect the sellers to the buyers, to use the mm -hmm. NGOs and government agencies to influence what goes on. And collectively, that's what we've really done to help drive change. So it sounds like one of the things that you're, alluding to is that in order to be able to be successful at market transformation is being able to identify what are the key levers of power and engaging them and creating a bit of a, uh, not just a coalition, but a cohesive and shared goal and that groundswell of institutional pressure and change will carry some of the smaller actors as well. The local school corporations, small businesses, individual consumers, and so on. And so, you know, I, I'm somewhat fortunate working in the cleaning industry. And where I'm going with this is there's companies in the technology space where the evolution of the technology is changing so quickly that people really are just focused on performance-related issues and cost-related issues, right? You know, you're, whether you're looking at cell phones or you're looking at gaming devices or, 
you know, the, the technology is evolving. La, 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 la. Well, we've done it again. 28 minutes was not enough for us. Join us next week for part two of our discussion. Same time, same station, WFHB Bloomington. This is Big Talk.